Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, but don't stand up just yet. You may want to buckle your seatbelts, though, because we are diving into a very rich and deep portion of Scripture in Ephesians 1 this morning. 62% of college students recently reported that they suffered from overwhelming anxiety. 40 million adults are affected by anxiety disorders. 16.2 million adults in the United States have experienced major depressive episodes in the past year. And these are just the serious cases of depression and anxiety, but I'd suggest that all of us experience, to varying degrees, episodes of depression and anxiety. We all feel overwhelmed, uncertain about the future, anxious or depressed at times. Some of us feel that way virtually all the time. This is true even of the great saints in the Bible. Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings 19 said, it is, enough, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. King David said in Psalm 6, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. My bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. I am weary in my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. And modern-day saints have struggled with the same kinds of things. C.S. Lewis spoke about being in a darkness where it seemed that God did not care. He wrote, But go to him where, when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. That's somebody who feels lost and alone. Charles Spurgeon suffered great depression. So did Augustine, Martin Luther, John Bunyan, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, all wrote of their experiences of depression and anxiety. But does it have to be that way for Christians? Obviously it is, but does it have to be that way? Paul tells the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, and again what? I say rejoice. Can we? Rejoice always? Is there hope? I understand the biological influences and psychological challenges that exacerbate these problems. But if the God of the universe lives in you, isn't it possible? Isn't it possible that there's power to overcome depression and anxiety? Isn't it possible that we could have the power to rejoice in Him? Maybe the biggest obstacle for all of us who claim Jesus is Lord is a matter of fragile unbelief. If that's you, I don't think you're alone. You're not that special. We all, I think, suffer from fragile belief. If we were able to truly, fully, completely believe all that God promises and believe with everything in us that He is sovereign and believe fully that He is bringing us to glory with eternal, everlasting, overwhelming, soul-flooding joy... If we believed this, could it be enough for us to rejoice always? Could it be enough to see His glory, know His sovereignty, embrace His goodness, and most of all, bask in His love? Could that be enough? In Mark 9, Jesus was speaking to a father of a child who was endlessly convulsing, and the father, recognizing who Jesus was, cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. My hope for this morning is that we look at God's Word and that our hearts cry out to Him, I believe, 
Help my unbelief. And I pray that God answers that cry and that collectively this morning our belief increases and with it our joy in the Lord, our peace, our comfort, our trust, and ultimately our worship. So here's the question. Can we do that this morning? Can we, can we come together and say, God, we want to look at your word, see what you would say. Come to your word and say, I believe, help my unbelief. With that, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. And if you would, please stand. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 6. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Apostle Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Lord, we come this morning, and I pray that You would squash any ego that I might have in how I might communicate, that You would overwhelm our minds and our hearts and our souls and our wills with Your truth, and God, that You would make Yourself glorious. God, that you would help us believe and you would help our unbelief. God, we commit this morning to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Mike has been preaching through Romans chapter 8, and if you've heard me speak, you've probably heard me maybe reference Romans 8 once or twice. Um, Yes, I like Romans 8. Um, My fear, though, at this point is that Romans 8 becomes a punchline, that Romans 8 becomes a meme something that Matthew just always references. But here's the reality. I breathe every day because of the truths of Romans 8. I cling to those truths as if my life depends on it because it does depend on those truths. Not only my life, but my eternity. The truth is, Romans 8 is my air, my life jacket, my seatbelt, my helmet, my armor, my life support, I'm very aware of my own sinfulness, my own sinful desires, my sinful nature. So when I come to Romans 8, 1, which says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's hope for my soul. And there's comfort to read on and see the gift of the Holy Spirit in those who belong to Him because He's called me and He's adopted me. I belong to Him in spite of rebellion. And as I look around the world and Inside my heart, I see it all explained in Romans 8. We live in a broken world, a world broken by sin. So why would I expect anything other than suffering and pain and affliction? But the suffering of this present time doesn't compare with the glory that is to come. So along with the whole earth, I groan, eagerly awaiting the time when God is going to make all things right. Don't you long for the time when God is going to fix this world. He is going to make all things right. When the brokenness will be done away with and everything will be good again. I long for that time. I groan with all of creation for that time. But as I'm caught up in the world, my deficiencies are overwhelming to the point that sometimes I don't even know what I should be praying. And the good news of Romans 8 is that the Holy Spirit intercedes for me and fills in those gaps. And in the midst of all of this brokenness, there's a promise. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
And that good is to bring me, his adopted child, to glory. He's going to erase my sin, make me holy, make me more like Jesus, and he's promised to bring me all the way to glory, into his presence. And everything in this broken world, everything that happens in this broken world works together under his total sovereignty and care to bring me to ultimate glory and ultimate joy. Nothing can stop him from accomplishing that purpose. If God is for me, who can be against me? I take real hope in that reality. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I can get up in the morning and thrive in this broken world when I know and I live in the truth of Romans 8. And so this morning we come to Ephesians 1. And in it, we see some of these great truths of Romans 8 exploded into a magnitude that should stun our souls. Starting in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Paul erupts into a 202-word sentence, gushing and overflowing about the greatest truths in the universe. And in the middle of that sentence, starting at the end of verse 4, he says this, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. The tip of the spear for this morning is those two words at the beginning of this phrase, in love. As we understand these verses, I think that the love of God becomes more real, more tangible, more difference-making. And so that's what we're shooting for this morning. But first, what catches most people's attention in this phrase right here is the words, he predestined us. That's what jumps out. That's what everybody kind of latches onto. He predestined us. And that brings us to the first of five eternal realities of this passage. Five eternal realities of this passage. And we start with number one, the eternal choice. Number one, the eternal choice. Pastor Mike will be unpacking this concept much more in the weeks to come in Romans 8, 29, 29 and 30. So we're not going to fully dive into this here today. But this is a fundamental truth. God predestined. He predetermined. He chose. He elected those to be saved. And it's not just a theological or mental exercise. God puts it all over the Bible. He wants us to pay attention to this reality. It's in John 1. It's throughout the book of Acts. It's in 1 Corinthians 1, in Galatians, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, Philippians 1. Paul seems to think that this is an important enough concept that he seems to start a lot of his letters with some type of a foundation built on the idea of God's free will in choosing people for his own purposes. There are also many references to God's choosing those whom he saves in the letters to Timothy, to Titus, and Hebrews, Jude, and throughout Revelation. It's sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament. It's in many other places that I'm not even mentioning. All of these writings paint this picture of God's sovereign choice of those whom he will save. We get caught up in this because we have questions. We want to know, does God predestine people to hell? Aren't people responsible for their own sin? I can't answer all of the questions that you might have on this, but I do know that we're all responsible for our own sin. We all are deserving of hell. And God chooses some to save. That's his prerogative. He predestined according to the purpose of his will. He does what he wants. He's God, he's just, and it's what the Bible says. 
John 1, starting verse 11, says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Everyone who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who believed in his name? Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believe are those who are born of God. But for today, let's not get caught up in the semantics of this truth. If you believe and you love Jesus, look back with gratitude and thank God that he interfered with your free will to show you him, to show you the gospel, to give you a new heart, and that you do believe. Just be thankful. And if you love someone who doesn't believe, pray like you believe that God actually does interfere and actually does change hearts. And if you don't believe, or if you're worried about whether or not you are chosen, don't worry about that. Just believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't worry about the mechanics of it. Just believe. Believe that you have sinned and offended a holy God and that you deserve eternal punishment. Believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Believe that Jesus lived a perfect life and then died in your place, a substitute for you, taking the wrath of God that you deserve and giving you his righteousness. Be thankful for that sacrifice. Turn from sin. Set your heart to live with a desire to live for Jesus. Trust him as your only hope of salvation. Just believe. Romans 10 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Then in verse 17, So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God calls, God changes hearts, God interferes with free will through the preaching of the word. So don't worry about whether you're chosen. Believe. Maybe this morning, Maybe even this morning, through the preaching of his word, you will believe and then you will know that you were chosen because you would have a heart that believes and God uses his word to bring about that belief. So number one, the eternal realities in this passage is the eternal choice. Number two is the radical adoption. There was an eternal choice that God has made and it leads to a radical adoption. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. When we believe, we are adopted. He makes the choice, and the choice is for you to belong to Him. So He gives you a new heart to believe. Every person has been created in the image of God. We are all image bearers, but sin has contaminated that image, has ruined that image. And so we're not worthy to belong to the King. We're not worthy to be a child of God. But that's what this says. God purposed in eternity past by his own choice and purpose, to adopt a rebellious people to make them his children. To be a child of the Most High God. This echoes Romans 8. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are made to be a part of God's family in an intimate way. That's why there's no condemnation. Those who have been chosen belong to him. And it's this act of choosing to be made part of God's family that is an act of supreme love. It says here that in love he did this. In love he did this for his own purpose. You were adopted not based on merit, not based on your own goodness, 
but based on His love and His purpose. Unmerited love, undeserved love. Really, in a human sense, this only makes sense in a family relationship. Maybe where, it makes the, where we come the closest in a human relationship, in a human dynamic, is the love that parents have for a child. For those of you who are parents, if you remember the time your first child was born, here's this human being, this person you've never met. You don't really know anything about them, about their personality, about their wants, their likes, their dislikes. They've never done anything for you. They have not contributed anything to you. They've never said anything nice to you. And yet the moment that they are born, in fact, I would suggest before they were ever born, you loved them unconditionally, wholly, and completely. In fact, when my first son was born, I remember feeling a little bit uncomfortable and even a little ashamed because I thought, is that how my parents felt about me? I have so shortchanged that. Unmerited love, undeserved love. God loves us in that way, unmerited, undeserved. He chooses us. He adopts us. But parental love for a newborn, while it's the closest human version we have to this kind of love, it's still broken. Humans are broken and so our human love is broken. So it's not always the case that a parent loves their newborn. Julia Clark is one of the college-age students here at Grace. When she was born, her birth mother placed her in a Stater Brothers shopping bag and left her in the bushes in a park in Santa Ana. It doesn't appear that Julia was loved at the moment of her birth, at least not loved by her birth mother. But let me suggest to you that she was loved at the moment of her birth, and we're going to see that here in just a minute, but not by her birth mother. A few hours after she was born, she was found by a couple of boys playing in the park, and there she was, all alone in the world. And you know what? Through a series of God-ordained events, Randy and Susan Clark heard about this baby that was abandoned in the park. They had been praying about adopting a baby. They already loved a baby that they knew nothing about as they were praying for this baby that God would bring them. And here's Julia, unloved by her birth mother, birth mother, all alone. And yet, Randy and Susan wanted that baby. Julia was loved from the moment she was born by people who had no idea about anything, about who she was or anything about her. But they loved that baby. And very clearly, God loved that baby from before she was born. But Randy and, Julie, uh, Randy and uh, Susan loved that baby with no reason at all. Julia did nothing to earn their affection. They didn't know her. She wasn't related to them. She didn't share DNA with them. Yet they chose her for their purpose. Out of their will, they gave Julia love. And all Julia has known for her whole life is unconditional love. I've asked her, have you ever felt unloved? And she says, absolutely not. It's worth noting that God's love for us is expressed as adoption. Our sin separated us from Him, and so while we were created in His image, our sin destroyed any relationship with Him. But in love, He chose, He adopted. But there's one thing that Randy and Susan could never do for Julia. They could never give her their 
spirit and their nature. They can't do that. And that's where adoption into the family of God is different. When you were adopted into the family of God, at the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, as it was predetermined before the world began, the Apostle Peter says that um, you became a partaker in the divine nature. You became a partaker of the divine nature. He gave you his spirit. When you were adopted, he gave you his nature. That's the promise of Romans 8, that he makes us into his image, makes us more Christ-like. And so there was an eternal choice that leads to a radical adoption. And then we have the divine son. We note back in Ephesians 1 that we were adopted through Jesus Christ, through the Son of God. We are made sons of God. Jesus was the means through which we were adopted. We were slaves, slaves to sin. And for those who were adopted, we were purchased. We were made to be sons and daughters. First Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And a little further in Ephesians 1, verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. We have redemption in him. This word redemption is used over and over in these passages I've just read to you. And uh, the word um, literally means it's a, a releasing effect by payment of ransom. It's a liberation procured by payment of rans- ransom. This is the language of slaves, the purchase of a slave from the slave trading block. So God makes a purchase to buy us. We were slaves to sin and he bought us, setting us free And not only does he buy us and set us free from being slaves, he turns around and adopts us. He makes us his child. He gives us his nature. He gives us himself. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, same word, the forgiveness of sins. God predetermined a plan, choosing a people to adopt through his son, Jesus, who ransomed them from slavery to sin, making those chosen people children of God through the Son of God. So number one, there's the eternal choice leading to the radical adoption through number three, the divine Son, leading to number four, or because of number four, the infinite love. The infinite love. All of this happens, all of this is set up by those two words, in love. Maybe the most common criticism I hear of Grace Church of Orange is that we focus too much on God's wrath. We focus too much on God's judgment, on heavy theology. We don't pay enough attention to God's love. Maybe that's true, I don't know. But as we consider Ephesians 1 this morning, I would suggest that God's love is overwhelming. It's vast, it's unmeasured, it's boundless, and it's free because... It's rooted in the wrath and judgment of God and because it plumbs the depth of the deepest theology. God's love is not mere emotional sentimentality. Yes, it should evoke emotions in us, but it's so much more. 1 John 4 says that God is love. Not that God loves, which he does, 
but God is definitionally love. Pop songs have always wrestled with this idea of love. What is love? What's love got to do with it? How will I know if he really loves me? Will you love me tomorrow? How deep is your love? Do you love me? Do you feel the love? Where is the love? Is this love? Can you feel the love tonight? None of those questions can really be answered without understanding that God is love. And the statement that God is love only makes sense in a Trinitarian God. If God existed before he created and he was all that there ever was, then who did he love if he was definitionally loved? The Father has a special eternal love for the Son and the Son for the Father and the Holy Spirit for each. And there's this eternal, cosmic, inter-Trinitarian love that has existed before time ever began. Jesus speaks of this love in his high priestly prayer, this unique love specifically in the Trinity between the Father and the Son. Jesus says to the Father, refers to and says, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before anything was ever created, there was this love between the Father and the Son that's beyond anything we can understand. And this special eternal love defined the Godhead. Tim Keller says, If God is unipersonal, God is one person, then until God created other beings, there was no love, since love is something that one person has for another. This means that a unipersonal God was power, sovereignty, and greatness from all eternity, but not love. Love, then, cannot be the essence of God. End quote. So for all eternity, God is love, and because of that, God is eternally, infinitely happy. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy about the gospel of the glory of the happy God. Keller goes on to say, quote, within, it, within God is a community of persons pouring glorifying love, joyful love into one another. Think about this pattern in our own experience. Imagine there is someone you admire more than anyone else in the world. You would do anything for him or her. Now imagine that you discover that this person feels exactly the same about you and you enter into a lifetime of friendship or marriage. Sound like heaven? Yes, because it comes from heaven. That is what God has known within himself but in depths and degrees that are infinite and unimaginable. That is why God is infinitely happy, end quote. So then why does an infinitely, eternally happy God ever create? What's his motivation? The answer has to do with love, but it might be deeper than you think. We're going to look at several passages really quickly, and I want to point some things out to you. We'll put them up on the slides so you can follow. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 says this, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Stop right there. By the blood of the eternal covenant. Don't just skip over those words. Eternal covenant. There was a covenant made in eternity. There is an eternal covenant. Who existed before in eternity past, before anything else was created? The Godhead the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a covenant amongst the Godhead within the Trinity that exists for eternity. And this covenant has something to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus. This eternal covenant is to equip you with every good thing so you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. So we have an eternal covenant and there's something to do with it that has to do with Jesus' death and resurrection. Titus chapter 1 says this, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God 
and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Long ages ago literally means before time began. Before time began, God made a promise. Before time began, He made a promise to who? Who existed before time began? The Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a covenant that was made amongst the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a promise that was made before time began with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this promise, as we see in this this verse, has something to do with people chosen of God and with the hope of eternal life. So there's an eternal covenant, there's a promise, and it has to do with Jesus' death and resurrection, people chosen of God, the hope of eternal life. So we look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but why? Because of His own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That's exactly the same phrase, before time began. Before time began, God had a purpose for us in Christ Jesus. Before time began, God had a purpose for us in Christ Jesus. And the purpose included saving people by his grace alone and calling them to a holy calling. So then we go to John 17, which is the high priestly prayer. This chapter fascinates me. This is a look into inner Trinitarian conversation. God the Son speaking to God the Father, and we get to peek in and see what happens in this conversation. And the Son says to the Father, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, stop right there, whom you have given me, the Father has given something to the Son. What do we call that? That's a gift. The Father has given the Son a gift. Whom you have given me. What is this gift? They're people. I desire that they also be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. God loved the Father, loved the Son before time began. The Father gave the Son a group of redeemed people and they were a gift. This gift of these redeemed people was so that these people would see the glory of Jesus and it would result in their joy and His praise for forever. Let me sum this up for you and Four main points. One, fatherly love. One, fatherly love. The Father has eternally loved the Son. You can put up that next slide. The Father has eternally loved the Son. Number two, the promise. In eternity past, there was a promise, an eternal covenant made within the Trinity. So one, there's fatherly love. Two, there's a promise. In eternity past, there was a promise made within the Trinity. Number three, the gift. This promise was for a gift that God chose people to redeem as a gift for the Son. God the Father chose a people to redeem as a gift for the Son. And then we have the glory. These redeemed people are to see the glory of Jesus, and this results in two rockbed truths. Redeemed people see the glory of Jesus, and this results in our eternal joy and the worship of Jesus for forever. Seeing the glory of Jesus results in our eternal joy and the worship of Jesus forever. This phrase, in love, God is love. God the Father loved God the Son before time began. Love needs an expression, it needs an action. Love acts, and so the Father makes an eternal covenant with the Son. 
He would redeem a people who would understand that they deserved eternal punishment, who would understand that they deserved eternal wrath, and he would adopt them to be his children and lavish them with grace and joy for eternity. And he would do this through Jesus. So for eternity, a grateful people, a grateful redeemed people would praise and worship Jesus forever. And then Jesus, in a response of total love, would respond with full obedience to follow God's plan and go to the cross and fulfill God's eternal purposes. Everything that exists is a function of the eternal love between the Father and the Son. And in the middle of it all, we are the gift being offered from the Father to the Son to express this infinite love. You and I were terrible sinners. We're rebellious. We're offensive to God. But what if I said to you, you're like the worst person in the world, and you're ugly, and you smell really bad, but you know what? Out of the goodness of my heart, I love you. How does that feel? Kind of, that's how we think of and we perceive God at times. We're sinful, wretched people. And yet God, out of the kindness of his heart, just chooses to love us. And there's a sense, I don't mean to mock that, that's true. I just want to suggest that there's actually a reason that God loves us, even more. He loves us because we are a gift. We are a gift with an infinite price. So we are of infinite value because we represent his eternal love between the Father and the Son. He loves us for a reason. We are a gift to praise and worship His Son. We bear His image. We're restored in glory to reflect the image of Jesus. We are adopted to be a part of the family of God and to enjoy Him. And that's the basis of His love. Some of you have heard me share the story before. When I was a kid, my mom lost the diamond in her engagement ring. And I can remember looking with her for days around the house and we couldn't find the diamond. And one night shortly after I'd gone to bed, I hear this squealing and screeching and crying from downstairs and I'm sure that somebody has invaded the house and I go running downstairs and there's my mom sitting on the floor holding this tiny diamond in her hand and just crying. What made her cry? Was the diamond worth so much? It's a small diamond. It wasn't the value of the diamond. It's what the diamond represented. The diamond represented a love between a husband and a wife. And so that diamond was so important and so valued because of what it represented. If you're a child of God, you are loved because of what you represent. You represent the eternal love between the Father and the Son. We represent something so much bigger than we are. We represent a cosmic, eternal, divine love within the Trinity, and we're loved because of that. There's an eternal choice, a radical adoption, the divine Son, the infinite love, and that brings us to number five, the joyful worship. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. This phrase talking about to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace shows up three times in the first chapter of Ephesians. That's what it's all about, praising the glory of his grace. 
Turning his adopted children to praise his glory is the essence of God's love. That's why we can say that the existence of hell is actually a function of God's love. Let me say that again. Turning his adopted children to praise his glory is the essence of his love. That's why we can say that the existence of hell is actually a function of God's love. Recently in the news, I saw a story of a man who came home and found his um, eight-year-old daughter um, who he thought was alone in the house, and there was another man in the house who was abusing her. This man walks into the house, and things happened, and a few minutes later, he calls 911, and he says, there's a seriously injured man at my house. And 911 operator says, were there any weapons involved? And the man says, yes, my hands and my feet. We can talk about whether it was right for that man to take vengeance into his own hands, but we understand it, right? We understand that if he loved his daughter and he walked in on that situation, he's going to do something about it. If he just offered the man a cup of coffee, what would that say about his love of his daughter? Vengeance, punishment, is a part of love. And that which we love most requires that we would defend it in love. In the same way, God rightfully takes vengeance when that which he loves is violated. And what he loves more than anything is his own glory. What he loves more than anything is his own glory. And that's good news for you. Follow this along. He loves his glory more than anything. So he defends his glory more than anything. And so hell must exist. Since God's glory is the basis of our eternal joy, then his love for us depends on his love for his glory. God's glory is the basis of our eternal joy. Therefore, his love for us depends on his love for his glory. And if he loves his glory, when his glory has been assaulted, there must be punishment. So hell is a function of his love for us. I'll explain a little more. We are a gift to the Son to express the Father's love. But don't miss that since his love for us is rooted in his love for his own glory, that necessitates and results in the everlasting, overflowing joy of the adopted. John Piper says this, quote, Because God is unique as the most glorious of all beings and totally self-sufficient, he must be for himself in order to be for us. If he were to abandon the goal of his own self-exaltation, we would be the losers. His aim to bring praise to himself and his aim to bring pleasure to his people are one aim and stand or fall together. In view of God's infinitely admirable beauty, power, and wisdom, what would his love of a creature involve? Or to put it another way, what could God give us to enjoy that would show him most loving? There's only one possible answer, isn't there? Himself. If God would give us the best, the most satisfying, that is, if he were to love us perfectly, he must offer us no less than himself for our contemplation and fellowship, end quote. In Ephesians 1, Paul gets specific and says that we're to praise the glory of his grace. Praise the glory of his grace. His grace most displayed at the cross. So more than anything, we are to praise Jesus. And our praise and worship of Jesus is what brings us the greatest and eternal joy. Revelation 5, we see a glimpse into eternity with the redeemed and the angels singing praise to Jesus, singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and, lang- tribe and language and people and nation. It goes on and says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We praise Jesus for eternity because Jesus purchased us and 
ransomed us and we were adopted into the family of God. Jesus receives all the praise and the glory. We are the gift from the Father to the Son to praise Jesus forever and ever. And in that, we receive eternal joy. C.S. Lewis has said, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely has escaped me previously. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians and scholars. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. And Lewis continues, follow this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Our worship of Jesus is incomplete until it is expressed and that's what we get to do for forever. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And when we see Him, we will have joy. There will not be depression when we see Jesus. There will not be anxiety when we see Jesus. He has purposed a plan from eternity past and he will accomplish it. His plan is divine. It's perfect. It's an infinite gift to express unimaginable love from the Father to the Son. And we, the redeemed, are that gift. Nothing will stop him from that plan. Nothing will stop him from that plan. We can trust him. We are saved to praise the glory of his grace. And wouldn't it be good to do that to the fullest extent now. Couldn't we plead with the Lord to let us be the greatest representation of that gift now, to see and declare His glorious grace? I've always liked a particular quote attributed to D.L. Moody, but it might have been Henry Varley who said it. Either way, here's what one of them said. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to Him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. Do you want to be that man or that woman who's fully devoted to praising the glory of His grace? The world has not yet seen a man who would do that. God was eternally happy in the past and He will be eternally happy in the future. The Father gives all to the Son and the Son gives all to the Father. He is the King of the universe and He was the baby in the manger. He is sovereign over the stars and the galaxy and He is sovereign over the hairs on your head. He made all things by His word and He holds all things by His power. He created in His image and now He restores to His image. He treasures you not because you are nothing but because you are a gift. The ultimate gift reflecting the ultimate love. He loves you not because you are so good but because you represent so much. You represent His divine character and you represent his eternal love the father's love for the son is without end and your joy in the son is just beginning 
Your sin tainted his image. His death redeems his image. Your sin created the separation. His love created the full redemption. If you love him, it's because he first loved you, because he chose you, because he opened your eyes for you, because he called you, because he went to the cross for you, because he died for you, because he rose for you, because he purchased you, because he adopted you. Now you see him and you want him. Now you see him and you worship him. Now you see him and you live for him. Now you see him and forever you will praise him the glory of his name, the glory of his grace. You give him eternal praise, he gives you eternal joy. A gift of an infinite price, a gift promised before time began, a gift representing an eternal love. If you are his, he won't let go, he won't give up. You are the ultimate gift and you are guarded by the ultimate love and the ultimate power. Not for temporal pleasure, but for eternal reward. Nothing can derail, detain, or defeat his plans for that gift. Why do we worry when we will win? We belong to him. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Lord, we do praise you. We praise Jesus. God, We don't believe as we should. Help our unbelief. Help us to see you for all that you are in majesty and glory. Help us to see our shortcomings and to know what it means to be adopted as your children. God, help us to live to praise the glory of your grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.